and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you might be able to help us out here at the podcast. First of all, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. We appreciate the support. And if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past conversations, we would love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. Give us a rating. We really appreciate it. It helps us reach new listeners. And so thanks to all of you who have already done so, and we appreciate it if you would go over there and do that for us. Also, please share these conversations. Share them on social media. If you have a friend who's into podcasts, let them know, hey, have you checked out this conversation? I think you'd enjoy it. You can even grab their phone and say, hey, here's a podcast I think you'll like. Show them how to subscribe. I know I've done that with a few people that are my parents' generation that have no idea how to listen to podcasts. I show them, I hit the subscribe button, and they are forever grateful for that. So thanks to all of you who continue to support the podcast in 2020. We're so glad that you are, and we're appreciative of your time, as we know it's your most valuable resource. Now to today's guest. Jamie Beckler is a professional speaker. He's a leadership trainer, and he's an executive business coach who has worked with teams ranging from major corporations to teams in the NBA. And before going into full-time leadership work, Jamie served for 20 years as a college basketball coach, a professor, and an administrator. So he's going to talk about his journey uh, as a coach. He's coached men and women, and also what it was like to be an athletic director. And when he hung up his whistle, he didn't stop coaching. Jamie just moved from the locker room into the boardroom. And so now he travels the country motivating people and coaching organizations on how they can build championship teams and cultures. And Jamie is somebody who cares deeply about leadership. We're going to have an interesting conversation about what leadership is, what it might not be, what is good leadership, what is not so good leadership. And Jamie is going to talk about what that looks like both on the basketball court and perhaps away from it as well. So... Without further ado, I'm excited to present to you, Jamie Beckler. Jamie, excited to have you on the podcast. As we just chatted for, I think, 20 minutes or so, uh, it appeared to me that we sort of play in similar sandboxes. I think we're both passionate about developing people. We both have a background in sports, although yours is more nuanced than mine. And we both just care deeply about finding out people's stories and how they are intentionally moving towards success and how they define success and and all of that good stuff. So I'm excited that we're connecting. Uh, as we were talking, we have a mutual friend, Alan Stein. Uh, shout out to Alan. And we were talking before we fired up the podcast about Alan's ability to market, Alan's ability to serve others and help people. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot to be learned from what Alan is doing. And uh, you said you were with him this morning. I'll probably be with him before the holidays or see him in the new year uh, because I'm, I live closer to him though. I'm five minutes away. Um, but, but where I'd love to start with you is just give an, get an idea of what life was like for you as a young kid. So take me back to young Jamie. What was, what was young little Jamie like as a kid? Uh, and, and just so people know, the reason why I often like to start there is because what I'm most interested in is who someone is and our upbringing has a lot to do with who we are and it doesn't mean we need to stay there and doesn't mean we don't change as a result of our upbringing, but it does like the way we're raised, 
who we're raised by, the community, the values we're taught, all that stuff is a big part of it. So for those who have ever wondered, like, why did Brian need to start all the way back? It's just, it's where I love to learn. So teach us, what were you like as a kid? <laughs> I was perfect. I was a perfect kid, never caused my parents any problems whatsoever. But uh, seriously, though, I, you know, my upbringing was, is, is nothing to write home about. You know, I don't have, um, you know, the testimonial time at, at summer camp or in a church where, where people are going to be crying and, and using Kleenexes after I'm done talking. You know, I, I grew up in what I thought was normal, uh, two parents. Uh, we we uh, weren't rich, but I thought we were because we always had everything that we needed. But then my parents were both very hardworking. My mom was a, a school teacher and uh, my dad was a truck driver for the longest time. And, and, uh, uh, and then he did some other things, but he was a fire, a volunteer firefighter for 30 years and he was involved in local politics. And, he, you know, I just learned the value of hard work early on. Uh, they took me to any sporting event I wanted. They allowed me to be involved in anything. They would take me, but they were absolutely not helicopter parents, absolutely not those parents that give parents a bad name. Um, in fact, they might've been the opposite. Uh, you know, they were, they were hugely supportive, you know, the kind that if you strike out, they, uh, they still think that you did a great job, that you hit a home run. They make you feel that way. So, but they were very supportive, very encouraging, but, but really what I took away from them was their character and their hard work. And they were so well-respected. My mom was the, the head of the teacher's union uh, in her school district. Uh, so she was very well respected by uh, her colleagues and, and my dad, you know, uh, he constantly won elections, local elections, because everyone knew he was a straight shooter. And he might, you know, be on the opposite aisle of you right now. But the next day, if it makes sense for everybody, he was going to do what was right. And so uh, you might not like his opinions, but you liked him and respected him. And so I learned those kind of things early on. And so going through school, you know, I played every sport pretty much. And, uh, you know, that was, I, I loved sports. And when I was in seventh grade, I had this English teacher that had this library of books in the corner of the room and, uh, we could, we could check out library books essentially. And, uh, one of the books I got was, uh, they call me coach by John Wooden. And that was really the first time I'd been introduced to coaching outside of like my immediate coaches. And, you know, I, I would love to say that as a seventh grader, I was so mature that I was able to uh, say, well, one day I want to be like John Wooden. It wasn't quite that, but it was the first time that I really realized, hey, I want a coach like John Wooden, someone that if my shot's going in or not going in, they still love me or they still care about me. Whether I'm a starter or a bench player, they still care about me. And, and I've, I knew what I wanted as a player. And then that would then, you know, the metamorphosis would take place over the years and, and a gradual evolution of that's what I want as a player. I can give that to people one day, uh, you know, if this pro thing doesn't work out. And, uh, you know, early on, I realized the pro thing wasn't going to work out. So uh, I became a coach and that, you know, a lot because of John Wooden and, and how he cared for his players. So you have models in your life. You have mom and dad and John Wooden even comes into your life, even though it's through a book. What were your thoughts on leadership as you go back to those days and, and watch mom and dad take on leadership positions and read about John Wooden? Like, what were you thinking as far as leadership went back then? You know, I think I was pretty much like every other kid and every other person in that I thought that leadership was only about positions, titles, authorities, you know, uh, you know, if you were a captain, you were a leader. If you weren't a captain, you weren't a leader. Um, and only the captains were the good players or the seniors. Uh, you know, I'd love to sit here and say today that, you know, I was this advanced kid, next level thinking, I, you know, I, I thought like a coach, but I didn't really understand leadership until I got to college and then got into coaching, uh, you know, and, and seeing it. And, and I, and I developed more of a mindset of, of leadership through the more I got to know John, John Maxwell and his work. Um, and John Maxwell is all about leadership is just influence. It's one life influencing another. And so it's not about positions or status. It's about influence and that anyone can influence. And so then I would start thinking back to when I played and, you know, we influenced each other as friends, not necessarily because we had status or we were a starter or we weren't a starter. It was because we were respected. And then I think back to my parents and, 
you know, my dad was respected and people followed him. People wanted to please him. People admired him, not because he was a local official, not because he was a firefighter, but because of who he was. Uh, people respected his character. And, and the same with my mom, not because she was an amazing teacher, though she, I'm, I'm sure she was, you know, she, she gave me a B plus in science in third grade. So I, I don't know if she was that good of a teacher after all, you know, if she's given me a B plus, but you know, other people thought she was a good teacher. And so, but that was, but they respected my parents because of who they were and what they do and their integrity. And so it was later on that all that kind of stuff started to resonate with me. You know, it's like, it's like anything, you know, we're the smartest people until we turn about 25 and realize how dumb we are. And it's amazing how smart our parents are and our coaches are. They get, as we get older, our parents and coaches get smarter and smarter. Um, you know, but it's really just we're maturing and understanding that we really didn't know anything. And, and we were pretty dumb when we were, when we were younger. I want to pull on that thread of, of leadership being influenced, which is clean and clear and uh, has me thinking. You also talked about respect and that your parents were well-respected. And so I'm hearing, okay, they were well-respected and that was a sign of maybe a good leader, right? They were well-respected and they had influence uh, and they were influencing people a certain way and they gained respect. But it appeared to me when you said influence, I thought of culture and how every organization has a culture. There's good cultures and bad cultures, but culture is the behavior that, that we're, we act on and our vocabulary or whatever, what have you. I want to go into the idea of leadership as influence. So I would assume that you think that every organization and team has leaders. Like you can't function within a team if you don't have, mm -hmm. you are going to have influence. Like there's going to be those people on your team that are going to influence others. So A, is that how you think about it? And B, if that is, then what do you see as, positive influences, negative influences? How do you think about influence within a team and how that functions and how that works? Yeah. Uh, you know, that I, I just thought of something and, and it's absolutely amazing that uh, I lead with this sometimes in my talks and, and, and you set me up perfectly before and I didn't go with it. But, you know, when I was in high school, I got introduced to leadership really for one of the first times in terms of, of influence. And I was in band class and I was screwing up the band on purpose because I was bored. I was an athlete and doesn't like band class because it wasn't cool, which was a stupid attitude to have. But I was screwing up band. I was screwing up band. And one day this, this teacher just stopped it and looked at me and said, there's two types of people in this world, Jamie, those who lead us forward and those who lead us backwards. And that's all. There's only two types and you're leading us backwards. Now get out. And he kicked me out of band class. And that was the first time that I truly, it started to, to get seep into my brain a little bit that, okay, there's two types of people. Well, I thought maybe there was more types. I thought there was people that don't mess it up or don't really, they're not leaders, but they're not bad leaders. But I realized, you know, we're, re we're really either taking our organization ourselves forward or we're taking us backwards. Now the backwards might be a lot slower you know, but you see a lot of times working with teams, working with businesses, there's these people that think that they're, they're in the middle. Well, I'm not hurting or helping. Well, but if you're not helping, then you're not helping. And that's the goal is to make our, our organization go forward. And, you know, no one wants to be called a negative leader, but if you're not being positive, then what are you? And everyone wants to say, well, I'm Switzerland or I'm in the middle ground, I'm neutral, but, but you're not because you're not helping the situation. And so we see these kind of things, you know, you deal with a lot of sports teams. Uh, I deal with a lot of sports teams and you see it in a locker room, you know, something's going on in a locker room, there's drama or someone's saying something, even in a business at a water cooler at the break room. And somebody f rationalizes in their minds that they're not they're not part of the problem because they're not saying anything bad. They're not complaining, you know, well, you know, Scott over there or Jalen over there is complaining, but I'm not complaining. Well, but you're not doing anything to make it better. And so, you know, when you look at culture in an organization, I do think going back to that band class, there are two types of people in every organization. Those who are intentionally or those who are really helping people move forward. Now it might not be the entire organization. It might be two people. 
It might be their two best friends in that organization or the two people that they go out to lunch with or they take breaks with. But you're helping those two people move forward to be better or you're not helping them move forward. And so I do think that that's important. And, and that's where our traditional viewpoint of leadership I think it's wrong. Uh, I, I think we're missing the boat constantly, whether we're in a bank, whether we're in a large Fortune 500 company with hundreds and hundreds of employees, or whether we're in a team. Whether we're a rookie, first week on the job, we're a freshman uh, on, a, on a team, whether we're the star uh, athlete or the star performer, we can lead because we can have influence over somebody in that organization. I love it. I'm thinking of there's a college team that I've worked with. There's an NBA team that I've worked with and they've kicked people off the team and or, or not signed a person or traded the person, whatever it might be. And then what happens after they remove that person, you see them take this step forward. And to your point, the people that they removed were influencing the team in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. And by removing those people, the team was able to take a step in the right direction. And I think one of the challenges for organizations is when that person is talented and their influence is not necessarily moving it in the right direction, where's the line and, and how do you manage that? And how do you think about that from an organization? And I, but I, I think what you just did was make it so clear. You're either positively influencing us or negatively. I had on Kyle Maynard and Kyle is this incredible human, uh, quadruple amputee who's climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. I mean, he's just, he's one of the most inspira- inspirational people I've ever been around. And Kyle shared this example of a CEO that when they're grading their people or rating their people, one out of 10, they can't give a seven, Right because a seven is safe. You're either a six or less or an eight or higher. And a lot of us want to say we're a seven and I hear from college athletes like, Oh, I lead, I just lead by example. It's like, okay, like that might be good enough. But I think the question then is like, well, is that leading by example, influencing our team in the right direction or is it influencing us in the wrong direction? And so I love that idea because it becomes binary and it becomes clear and I think that's that's so clean for me. And so I appreciate you sharing. And I want to go back to that piece about is the juice worth the squeeze, right? Mm-hmm. So when you, you've been on basketball teams and you know talent matters, like skill matters. I've been with championship teams that have won with dysfunction. Um, they were just more, honestly, they had, I worked with the high school basketball team. They had 12 D1 guys. They overwhelmed everybody. And then the next year, six of them transferred, right? And uh, it wasn't a great season other than winning a championship. So I'm curious for you, like how you think about uh, talent compared to influence and, and how, you, how you make sense of that. Yeah, John Maxwell, mentioning him again, he, he wrote a great book called Talent is Never Enough. Um, and, and I kind of liken it a little bit to the Jim Collins book of uh, uh, Good to Great. And, and, and and where I'm going with that is sometimes we think, all right, we're really talented, so we're good. Well, talent doesn't equal good. Talent just means you're talented. Talent plus work ethic plus attitude, all those things will make you good. And then it's a continuum. It's not that you're just good or not good. Sometimes it's, well, we can be good or very good or great. You know, we, we have that talent that's a baseline, but those intangibles or those soft skills then decide how much we're going to get out of that talent and how good we're going to be. Now you mentioned that high school team and, and we can all sit here and mention, all right, well, this player has been amazing throughout their whole career and got into the hall of fame and they were uh, you know, they had a terrible attitude. They had a terrible work ethic. They were just so talented. And we can think of that team just like that high school team. But I think the reality is if we really went and dug deeper there's a whole lot more teams that were amazingly talented that fell short than there were teams that were amazingly talented and they ended up winning the championship. More times than not, the talented teams are failing uh, more than they're reaching their potential because the talent lulls you into that uh, uh, false sense that you're good. And once again, talent doesn't equal good. Talent is not enough. Well, and it's, it's, it's a sustainability question as well. Like I said, okay, they won that. Um, yeah. But then they weren't able to 
maintain it because there was disconnection. And actually the people that left the team the next year ended up being a more connected team. And then they would end up being a better program as a result of it. I told you before we fired up the mics that I spent some time with the San Antonio Spurs. Mm -hmm. And while they are struggling right now, they have had such consistent um, systems and processes and culture over the years that they have been able to maintain their level of excellence as a result of something bigger than maybe one person. Um, and so I, I think what the Spurs are looking for is consistent, sustainable success. They're not looking for a one-off you know, championship here and there. Everyone wants championships, but the sustained, consistent, competitive every year, which is what the Spurs have been. And oh, by the way, that caused them to win, what, six championships or however many championships they've won. Yeah, and, and, and it certainly, uh, it certainly varies based upon what level you're at. It, it varies based upon what your goals are. Um, you know, success is different for everybody. Um, yeah, it's, it's sometimes crazy. My, my vision of success was shaped early on by John Wooden, uh, peace of mind. Essentially it's having peace of mind that you did your best, um, regardless of what your talent level was, you know, um, you know, if, if you're a student, if you have a ability and you get B's, then you were unsuccessful. If you're uh, a D student and you get C's, then you were successful, even though you got less than that, that student that got a B. Um, you're still more successful because you got more out of it. Now, it, it's sometimes strange to 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 have John, someone shape your thought on success uh, about, hey, it's it's you doing your best when he wins like a 1.7 million national titles and stuff, you know, when when he was amazing and was winning all these championships. But the reality is, it doesn't matter what level you're at. It doesn't matter if if you're a team that's not supposed to do well, or your team that has these pro players every year, you still are measured based upon what you're capable of doing. Uh, I know you had Jake Thompson on, on an earlier episode and, and his company is compete every day. And the whole premise of his company is to compete against yourself every day, to win every day, not to compete against everybody else. Now that's certainly, you know, we keep score. We want to, there's only going to be one champion you know, on the scoreboard, one person or team that's going to raise that trophy. But if we're only valuing that one team at the end and saying they're successful and every other team wasn't, then that's pretty short-sighted. That's pretty narrow-minded. And then that's setting our whole world up for failure. Um, but when we compete against ourselves, then that brings that success, you know, what that definition of success is. And, and so we're constantly, you know, you mentioned the talent, the talent, uh, we, we obviously have to have some talent. You know, you're not going to win a championship or win many games if you have no talent. But, you know, I will take a team that has, you know, a baseline of talent that has amazing soft skills that get along, that has great team chemistry over one of those teams that, you know, have all kinds of agendas, bickering. Um, and the same goes in an organization. I've, I've consulted with many organizations that they have people that are great salespeople you know, essentially could sell ice to Eskimos, you know, or, or those kind of things. But the company is struggling because everybody is at each other's throats. Everybody is jealous of one another. No one's, there's no collaboration. There's no, there's no help. There's no chemistry among the uh, team members. I love that you brought up Jake and the word compete comes from the word competere, which means to strive with. And somewhere along the way, we thought that it is to strive against. But if you think about our best performances, it usually comes when we are competing against somebody who is on our level or better than us. And they're challenging us and we're striving with them. And we see it in the playoffs in every sport. You see levels get raised because they're playing another team that's on their level. And so competere, this idea of striving with is is on point. And then I'm, I was laughing inside because you mentioned John Wooden's definition of success. And an hour ago, I was working with the president of a company who I do executive coaching with. And I was showing him the, the TED talk and the quote of him talking about peace of mind, knowing that I did the best I could with what I've got. And we were talking about him having peace of mind in 2020. And how can he have peace of mind knowing that he's doing the best that he can. So I love that you brought that up as well. I want to go back into your story though. When did you decide that you were going to be a coach? It sounds like college, it started to wake up for you as, the, as that 
that that might be a possibility for you. But walk us through your sports coaching career a little bit and give us some insight into what that was like for you. Well, certainly John Wooden, you know, that he was somebody that I only read about in books, but he coached all these great people and I loved his philosophy. And, and like I said, you know, every, uh, I, I wanted to be a pro athlete. Um, I was not good enough. Uh, I was not talented enough. It didn't matter. You know, I, I just wasn't going to be that. And so I started looking, well, what else am I going to do one day? And, you know, my high school coach, like a lot of people, my high school coach was one of the most important people in my life. And he was such a role model. Uh, his name was Bill Dunn. And, and he had a, he was very well respected in the state of Michigan. And, uh, you know, he was, he was really the first one that said, you know what, you can get recruited, you can get a scholarship. Uh, you can go to college, you can be a coach, you know, this is what I did in my path and you could do the same thing. And so when I went to college to play, uh, you know, I, I, I knew that I wasn't a great player. In fact, I, I found that out fairly quickly that I wasn't as good of a recruit as I thought I was because my first week in college, I'm there to play basketball and my, I, I see these signs up. Uh, around campus that say the football team is in desperate need of help. They've had a bunch of injuries or sickness or whatever. They need some players, people to come and be on the team. And I'm like, dude, this is awesome. I'm going to be a two sport athlete in college. I'll, I'll go play football. So I go into my basketball coach and I say, coach, you know, I want to help out the football team. Do you think this would be possible? That conversation lasted about a minute. And uh, he said, Oh man, Jamie, that'd be a great idea. I think, I think you would enjoy that a lot. And, you know, I was like, oh, man, thanks, coach. Thanks for being understanding. Well, every coach listening to this right now is like, you are so naive because there's no coach in America that would want any player that they have any plans for in the future to be playing football or a basketball coach. And so, so anyways, I, I ended up being a dual sport athlete for a little bit, but I wasn't talented enough to be a dual sport athlete. But anyways, uh, I learned early on that I was going to have to be a coach that my mind was probably my biggest talent. Um, even though, you know, I was a decent physical talent, my mind, uh, if I thought like a coach, if I saw things like a coach, um, and, and so, uh, yeah, I progressed from there and I got right into college coaching, uh, fairly quickly. I, I became a grad assistant at the division one level at Kent state university. And, uh, from there I, I, I coached a few years men and then I went into the women's game. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, uh, I went right from being a men's assistant coach to a men's co or women's college coach. And, uh, um, yeah, I coached about 20 years in the college level, mainly in the South, mainly at small colleges. And, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a great experience, but, uh, you know, speaking of John Wooden, when I was in college, I did my senior research project on John Wooden and whether his coaching philosophy and the way that he did things would still work today, which, which was back in the nineties. But, uh, uh, you know, interesting thing was, uh, I sent a letter to the UCLA athletic office and wanted to, uh, wanted to get some information on John Wooden for my senior research project. And maybe three months later, two months later, whatever it was, uh, I got this phone call in my dorm room and it was like, uh, it was John Wooden on the other end of the, that phone in my dorm room. And he was like, I can't talk right now, but, but I'll have time tomorrow at one o'clock. Will you be free? And I'm like, heck yeah, I'm going to skip class. Yes. I'm free coach. I will, I will be here at one o'clock when you call. And so he gave me about 30 minutes the next day and answered all my questions. And that was, that was amazing. What was that like for you to be on the phone with him? What did you feel like? What did, what did you learn? What, what, what was that like? Yeah. I mean, it was uh, first of all, it was surreal. Um, because here he is, you know, John Wooden has my dorm room number and he's calling me and, and I'm talking to this legend. Uh, so that, that was just amazing. Um, but then to hear him say the things that I had read about, you know, cause I'd done a lot of research, um, you know, and back then we didn't have the internet. So, you know, I was, I was pouring through old, uh, you know, uh, microfiche in the library and, and old books. And I'd read just about every book and magazine that had been written about him at that time. And uh, so it was like, you know, here coaches, he's saying all the same things that I've read about. He's actually saying it, you know, so, so I kind of know that he's internalized it, that that's real for him. He's not giving me something different, which first of all, was a good thing for my senior research project. Cause I certainly didn't want to do all this research. And then the man himself tells me something different that would have put me back at square one in a way. But uh, yeah, that was, that was amazing. That was amazing. How nervous were you for that conversation? 
you know, I don't remember if I was nervous or not. Uh, I don't, I don't remember that. My guess would be I was, I was fairly nervous, um, but I don't remember that. And I want to go over to when you're coaching. So you said you coached men and women. What were the similarities? What were the differences? Um, how did you adjust, if at all, once you made that transition? Uh, just teach us a little bit. <laughs> well, uh, one of the biggest mistakes I made as a coach was one of my first weeks on the job as a women's coach. I went recruiting. And the very first three female athletes I ever went up to introduce myself and tried to recruit I was informed had already committed to Virginia common. So VCU, Texas A&M and Texas. And I was at a division three school. So uh, first of all, that taught me that I, I should have known better to talk to their coach first. But, uh, but secondly, it, it taught me that, you know, I don't know evaluation of talent in the women's game. Uh, I've been, I've been in the men's game. And so I had to learn that. I also had, you know, a lot of plays, uh, that, that required, you know, time, you know, into the, into the game type plays. And I had to adjust that. Um, couldn't do any of those alley-oops anymore that we were doing in the men's game. Uh, so, but you know, you just, you just had to learn, um, you know, I, I know this is so trite and cliche, but people are people. And, and yes, there are some differences between men and women, just like, you know, there was a book at that time called men are from Mars and women are from Venus. And, you know, I read that to get prepared for marriage, you know, and just like in marriage, men and women are different, but that's also painting with a really broad brush because, you know, I had females on my team that were, had more male tendencies than guys on the men's team and vice versa. Men's coach, when I coach men, I had guys that had tendencies that you would expect in a female. And, and so I say that just to simplify it, but the reality is, if you've got 15 players on your team, whether it's 15 women or you got 15 men, they all are going to have different personalities. They're all going to have different backgrounds. Um, and so you have to coach and connect with all 15 of those. So even if I'm dealing with three women, they live in the same apartment, they all come from the same hometown, they all come from two parent households, they might all be different. And so, you know, you can paint with a broad brush just as a starting point, but that's all it is, is a starting point. And then you have to be very willing as a coach or a leader to, to take that U-turn or to go down, take that detour and, and adapt and adjust your thinking. It's only a starting point. You talked about connecting with them. What sort of things would you do as a coach to try to connect with your players? I was not as good early on um, as a, uh, a first-time head coach. Um, you know, one of my biggest mistakes overall as a head coach early on was I'm smarter than you. I'm the head coach. You're a player. You need to do things this way because I know what I'm doing. Um, and even though I cared a lot about my players, that was kind of the attitude I took was that, you know, I'm right. Do this because. Um, and, and that didn't work as well because I didn't get to know them. And, and more importantly, I didn't give them a reason to be inspired. I didn't give them a reason to know, like, and trust me. And so if I'm asking them to, to run through a wall for me, well, they didn't really have that connection with me to run through the wall. So it really took me getting fired. Um, you know, my, my goal was to be a head coach at a NCAA school by the age of 32. Well, I was a head coach by the age of 27. Um, and then four years later, they allowed me to go look for a job elsewhere. Hey, Jamie, real quick before you getting getting fired, which we're going to talk about, why 32 and, and why was that a goal that you had set for yourself? I have no idea looking back on what 32 was. I, I, think, I, I think it was 10 years. I think when I graduated college, I was 22. Looking back, that's the only thing I can think of. Um, but I, I do specifically remember 32, that I wanted to be a head coach by the age of 32. So that part's clear for you, though. It's like, I don't want to be an assistant. I want to have my own program and be running the show when I'm 32. Yeah. Now, now that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother topic of, I'm not sure there's anybody nowadays that's saying, all right, my goal is in 10 years to be a head coach. You know, people want to have stuff now. Um, then, you know, it was essentially 10 years later. I, I know I need to learn. I know I need to be a, a, an assistant coach. And so, but, but opportunities came uh, my way and some things happened and I, I had some opportunities to go be a head coach. And so I took advantage of those. And so, you know, I'm a head coach by the age of 27, by the age of 30, 
one, I am fired, which, you know, hey, I'm still smarter than everybody. I don't know why you fired me. But then I, you, you start looking back and you realize, well, you didn't connect. You, you, didn't, you didn't connect with the players like you should. You cared about them, but it's not enough to care about them. They have to know that you care. And I didn't really let them know that I cared. I, my actions didn't show that I cared. And, uh, you know, afterwards, I kind of think of the story. When I was in high school, I was walking down the street with my mom. And we're supposed to get to the other side of the street. And instead of going up to the crosswalk and going across the street like real people do, you know, I'm a punk kid. And so I'm going to cross the street right then and there. And so I start to go and my mom grabs my shoulder, pulls me back. I'm like, you know, mom, I got this. You know, she's like, well, there's cars coming. I said, it doesn't matter. Pedestrians have the right of way. And, and, and she looked at me and she said, yeah, and you'll be dead right. And I remember that it was only after kind of went through that first head coaching experience that I started to remember that. And it came back to me and it's like, you know, for the last four years, I've been dead, right. I am the smartest person in this gym. All these plays are supposed to work. The philosophies we're using, they're supposed to work, but they weren't working because I wasn't doing what I needed to do as a leader. I was trying to get them to be leaders, but I really wasn't developing them, training them, coaching them up to be leaders. I just wanted them to, be a leader by following me. And, and, you know, I think the best leaders are those that develop other good leaders as opposed to developing great followers. Um, when did you realize all of that? Like when I got fired, I got fired and I had a couple coaching friends and mentors send me books or talk me through that because you know, you get fired and you think the world's ending. You th you're, you're completely devastated. You, your world comes crashing down because that's all you ever wanted. And now all of a sudden, you, people are saying you're not good enough, um, you know, and, and for whatever reason. And, and so you, you, you have two options at that point. You can, you can get, I know it's cliche, but you can get bitter or you can get better. You know, are you going to harbor this bitterness? Are you going to have a chip on your shoulder? In those four years, I was conference coach of the year. I'm the, I was the only, still to this day, 20 years later, that's one of two teams to ever go to the conference playoffs at that college. Like that school is not a good school for athletics. And yet I did very good things there from a basketball standpoint, but I didn't do enough. And, and so I could have had a, a, a bitterness that, you know what, there, I'm a victim. I'm a victim. I shouldn't have been fired. But the reality is I didn't do my job. And, and my job was not just to win, but it was to develop people. And I didn't develop them like I should have. And some people spoke some truth to me and some people spoke into my life and I was able to examine my life. And that's where the better part comes in. And, and it, certainly, it certainly wasn't um, an easy thing. It's a simple thing. You know, you have two choices be bitter or be better. It's simple, but it's not easy. And so I had to work through that. And fortunately I had a, a close friends that were able to help me along the way through this. And, uh, you know, I had one guy, uh, some of your listeners may know him, some may not, but a guy named Ed Schilling and Ed Schilling is, is currently the assistant coach at, uh, for the Indiana Hoosiers. Um, at the time he was at Memphis with John Calipari, but before that, he had been fired as a head coach at Wright State and uh, a good friend of mine. And he sent me a book um, that someone had gave him when he had gotten fired. And so he kind of paid it forward. And so, you know, all those kinds of things kind of spoke into me. And it was like, you know what, if I'm going to continue in this coaching thing, I've got to keep getting better. Just like during the course of the season, I want our players to get better. I want our team to get better. And whether we win or lose a game, we always have another game. And we always have to get better. And even if we win, we got to figure out how to be better. And if we lose, we got to figure out, all right, how can we keep this from happening again? And so that was me with, with getting fired. What was the book? Oh, my word. Uh, or any, of the, any of the books that you read? You said there were a bunch of books that influenced you and helped you develop during that time. Yeah, well, the book that he sent me was uh, uh, more of a religious book, but it was uh, called something something to the effect of they meant it for uh, they meant it for evil, or they meant it for bad, or they meant it for harm. And it, but it was about Joseph in the Bible, and all these things that happened to Joseph, and yet he still overcame them. And some of them were his own making, some of them weren't his own making, but he still focused on you know doing what was right, and he should do what's right. And uh, it, it was more so from the bitterness standpoint of don't be bitter um, because that doesn't, that doesn't help anything. 
And there's a theme in there that I've had a past podcast share, which is it's hard to serve people that you think you're better than. It's <laughs> such a cool theme because we think that, oh, I'm better than this person, so I'm going to serve them. And like to me, one of the reasons I love the work that I do is because a lot of the people I work with are, <laughs> I don't, I'm not better than. Uh, they're, they're smart, they're talented, they, are, they have this inner genius about them. I met with somebody today who uh, runs a technology department at a big company, Fortune 500 company, and I'm going to do a, hopefully a, a workshop for their team. And um, I was like, yeah, I'm not going to tell a bunch of engineers that I know more than they do. Like, these are the people that I should be working for. And by working for them, I should be serving them. And um, I've learned along the way to partner with people that I want to be in service to. And I think it's hard to serve people that you think you're better than. And that's just like a cool phrase. And that's what I'm hearing is like, because you had all the answers, you weren't actually able to serve those people. And some of my favorite moments are when the player comes to the sideline and points something out to a coach and you see the coach listen and the coach actually put their arm around them. And you see those relationships, those special relationships. I remember Draymond Green and Tom Izzo had that. You see that with Tony Parker and Greg Popovich. Uh, you see it. I saw it with Elena Deladon and Coach Tebow with the Washington Mystics. Uh, you, you just see that relationship and I think a lot of times coaches or people that are managers or in positions of power, they think, oh, I'm in this position because I know more. And a big part of managing is unlocking potential. It's not uh, stuffing things down their throat so that they, um, you know, do it. And this is where coaching in your world, in the sport coaching world is so difficult because we were talking about this before we hit record, which is, and a great head basketball coach, for example, they do have to tell their people where they need to be. They do have to know the plays. They do have to know the scout. They do need to know their opponent. They do need to know their staff. They do need to know their recruits. Like it is a massive piece of the puzzle. And knowing all that information is really important. And so is developing your people. And it sounds like that's where you were missing was the connection to develop your people. And in order to develop those people, you need to believe that you're in service to them. They're not in service to you. And I think that's where it's really hard to be a sports coach. And I don't envy the job. I, I see it every day. And I'm like, there are so many complexities to this job. And there are so many hats, right? You've got salesperson to go recruit. You've got HR to manage your staff. You've got um, strategy. You've got executing and, and picking the plays. And so I just think it's a really hard job. And you see coaches that are really good at one and maybe miss some of the other pieces. And the ones that are great at all of them, you see a, a lot of times they're the elite of elite. And uh, I've been fortunate to be around some of those people and I'm always blown away by their capacity to do all those different jobs. No, you're, you're absolutely right, Brian. And, and, you know, you've, you've worked with the Spurs and so you've seen, you know, just to be clear, I haven't worked with the Spurs. I got to observe, observe, observe. The Spurs. if the Spurs are listening, would love the chance to work with the Spurs, but uh, I got to spend two days with their uh, general manager and their people and um, just sit back and take notes and, and learn and observe, but no, have not yeah, so worked you, with, worked, worked with the Spurs, but you've observed them. You, you know, their culture and, you know, when Greg Popovich dog cusses Tim Duncan, he can do that because, you know, uh, some some people would say that's tough love or, or whatever. What, but to have tough love, you have to have a strong bond. And, and most of us forget that as coaches. And we, we try to have tough love. There was no question in my mind that I cared deeply about my players because I came from the background of John Wooden. I, I wanted to to treat players well. I wanted them to develop as people. You know, I looked at that as, as almost like a, a, a mission field, you know, instead of going to Africa and translating Bibles in a jungle or something, I was, I was, you know, helping train people on a basketball court, but there was a disconnect there between the job and the task that I had to win games with that, that mission or that overall philosophy. And my players didn't always understand that I loved them, that I cared about them because my actions didn't, didn't match that. And, and it wasn't that I wasn't abusive to players. I, I, I don't cuss, you know, it wasn't that kind of stuff. It wasn't, you know, the old Bobby Knight type stuff, even though he was, he was a great coach, but it wasn't that old school mentality. It was more of, Hey, you got to be mentally tough. Hey, you, you know, it, it would be stuff like, you know what, we're going to right before practice, I would tell someone, Hey, uh, I'm going to start someone else tomorrow in the game. 
communication. Yeah. And they have, yeah. And I majored in communication too in college and I should be better than that. But it was essentially, it was never taking their point of view. It was never un walking a mile in their shoes. It was never thinking about how this is going to, how this is going to play out, how they're going to take this because it was always, well, as a competitor, me as a player, if a coach told me to do something or the coach said, you're not starting, I might not like it, but I'm going to do what the coach, and I'm going to be like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to be a good teammate. So I expected 15 players to be the same way. And, and they're not that because they have feelings, they have egos. And, and I didn't take that into consideration. So it's not that I didn't care about the players. I didn't show them constantly that I cared. And, and that doesn't mean that I'm going to give in to them all the time. It doesn't mean that they're going to get their way, but it does mean that I need to be more sensitive to where they're coming from. And, and this isn't like kumbaya. This isn't like, okay, be sensitive to everything and feelings are the only thing that's important, but it's, you know, you got to take that into consideration a little bit more because otherwise they're not going to think that you care. Yeah, empathy, just having some empathy and some compassion for who they are and, and how they've gotten to where they are. What did you do next? So now you're fired and what did you decide to do from a, from a career standpoint? <laughs> well, yeah, from a career standpoint, because uh, I drained my bank account by going out to eat and playing golf every single day and going to Hawaii a couple of times, which is not recommended whatsoever. But I don't know. That sounds that doesn't sound like that doesn't suck. Well, the great the great thing about getting fired, even at a small college, is a lot of times they pay you and you don't work. So uh, so I still got paid. I didn't have to work and I got to enjoy myself, but, um, I was unemployed. Uh, for you took the, you took that next thing quite literally. You took it like right, right after it. I <laughs> went to play golf. I well, that's ate a some lesson. steak. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's a lesson though. Don't, um, yeah, don't, uh, don't think it's Christmas just because you got a severance check or something. But, uh, no, I, I, I then had, a I went, was an assistant coach, um, and uh, for a, a team, we went to the national tournament that next year. And then uh, I was a head coach the rest of my career after that. I took a couple of head coaches jobs, got continually better each place I was at um, uh, and, and consistently learned different things. And, and eventually the last school I was at, we, uh, when I left that school, I was the all-time leading winning coach. And we had won like a national champions of character award as well. Um, and so, uh, we, we, we got it figured out from a basketball standpoint, we got it figured out from a character standpoint and, uh, yeah, things were going good, but it, you know, I don't know if I would ever been as good of a coach or impacted, uh, as many people if I hadn't gotten fired. So why didn't you stay on board? Why don't you keep going on the path that you're on? It sounds like you've got a culture now you've got, uh, some success. You've got, I would imagine some security, you're doing the right thing. You're building it. Why, why shift course? Yeah, I had this mistaken notion, this weird notion. I wanted to be an athletic director eventually. Uh, I didn't want to be an athletic director necessarily at that exact moment, but an opportunity came that was way too good to pass up. So I took advantage of that. And uh, the timing wasn't what I wanted, but I thought that it was the next step in my progression. It just came early. Uh, I got into being an athletic director. I spent two years as an athletic director and realized I didn't want to be cooped up in an office all day long. Uh, not having my own team and being essentially an administrator. Uh, that was just not for me. I, I loved developing leadership programs. I loved helping coach coaches, helping the coaches develop, but I didn't want to be an administrator, I realized. And so it was at that point that uh, I had been doing a lot of speaking on the side. I'd been doing a lot of leadership training on the side. And at that point, I was like, you know what? I, I, I've heard, I know some people that have gone into this space full time. Why don't I do it? So I jumped feet first, just dove right into the deep end and, uh, stopped being in organized athletics altogether. Uh, uh, resigned or, or gave them notice that I would be resigning, you know, in the summer or at the end of the school year. And, uh, I just moved, moved from Indiana to Atlanta and uh, just jumped into this uh, full-time speaking gig. And uh, since then, we've moved back. We've moved to where my family lives in, in the Cleveland, Akron, Ohio area um, for, for grandparents' sake. But, uh, you know, we, we just jumped into this a few years ago. And so I've been doing this full-time now for three and a half years and doing leadership, speaking all across the country and, and trying to, trying to uh, 
impact as many people as possible and coach as many coaches as possible and help them uh, learn from some of my mistakes and, and help develop our, our future leaders of our communities in our country. You mentioned being an athletic director. What were some of the things you noticed sitting behind the desk that maybe you didn't realize when you were a coach? <laughs> well, you, you never, well, I shouldn't say never, but very rarely as a coach, do you see the big picture with an athletic department? You see your tree, not the whole forest. And so you start to understand more of the budgets. You start to understand how decisions are made. And because when you're a coach, you're really only fighting for your stuff, for your basketball program or your volleyball program or football program. When you're an AD, you're thinking about 20 different programs. You're thinking about the, the greater the greater good, the team. Uh, essentially, those 20 sports are your 20 team members. And so you're trying to take each of those team members and put them together in a team. So that was something I didn't fully have as much of a grasp on. Um, but you know, you don't have as much control as, as an administrator over what really goes on with that team. You know, you see some issues with a coach, you can talk with them, but it's not like you're going to go down there during a game and be like, no, we need to sub this person out. No, we need to call this play though. This, this is what they're doing. This is how you're going to beat that zone, that zone defense. Trust me. I've been there. That's, this is what you want to do. You know, so you kind of got to, you got to be patient. Um, you know, but I, I took a lot of the stuff that I was doing as a coach, the leadership training, and I applied it to coaches, you know, uh, you know, just like I would try to make my players better. I was trying to help coach the coaches. I was trying to help make them better as people, as coaches, so that then they could impact uh, their players as well. You know, so that wasn't just X's and O's because at the end of the day, you know, we're trying to build people. Um, not necessarily resumes or, or a product or, or results, you know, that, that stuff will come. But at the end of the day, you know, we, we want those people to be better members of society. And then what was it like for you to go off on your own? I mean, you've been in these organizations and part of, you know, those processes and, and the security of having, you know, a paycheck. Uh, and now you're stripping the bandaid off and, and you're going off on your own. What's that been like the last three and a half years? It seems like every year I've been a graduate assistant, essentially. Um, every year I've been learning something new. And just when I think I have something figured out with, with running your own business and being your own boss and doing this stuff in this space, then you all of a sudden learn something different. And so uh, I've been learning a lot. Uh, you got to have a lot of discipline and, and certainly coaches have discipline. Certainly coaches have work ethic, but it's a different kind. And and as a coach, you know, or most jobs, you know, yes, I got fired, but the majority of, of people, whether they do a good, like it takes a lot of years for them to get fired. So, so you can actually be incompetent and still get a paycheck a lot of times, or you could be really good and get the same paycheck. Um, it's going to come every other Friday. Um, there's going to be days where, yeah, you might be at the office for 16, 18 hours, but you really didn't work as much. When you're working on your own, Every single hour, every single minute needs to be intentional. Um, you know, what, what I'm doing today, what I'm doing right now at this moment, why am I doing this? And how is it leading to future revenue for my family so that, so that my kid can eat SpaghettiOs and not just, you know, tomato pasta rings in a can, you know, so that he can have Nikes, not, you know, some off-brand or something, you know. So you can provide for your family. You've got to be intentional about everything. And that's something that I've been learning along the, 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 you know, these three and a half years, but it's been, it's been exciting. It's been great. You know, I, I get to help coach coaches. I get to, to work with teams and um, you know, that's, that's, that's an awesome experience when you see them being coachable, when you see that, that, that light bulb come on above their head, when they realize, Hey, I'm a freshman, that's 10th man on this team, but I can be a leader. Um, they've never thought of that before. And, and when a coach is like, hey, our culture is so much better because now these players are communicating this way and we weren't doing that before. Um, so those are, those are great things and they bring you a lot of uh, a sense of accomplishment. But, you know, obviously there's some times when I miss being a coach, when I miss actually having my own team, calling those plays. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do sleep better at night, uh, not having to worry about wins and losses. What's so you said earlier that you have to be intentional with your time and be disciplined. What sort of things do you intentionally do to make sure that you're your best self and that you're sharp and 
that you're on top of whatever you need to be on top of. Yeah, you try to, uh, even though as, as your own boss, you have essentially your whole day is free, but then your whole day is not free, but you get to choose what you put into that day. So yes, you could sleep until, I could sleep until nine or 10 o'clock, or I could only work two hours this day, but nobody else is doing the work. So if I'm doing, if I'm making that choice, like if I'm going to play golf, well, I've made that choice that on that day, I'm not doing this, this, or this. And so that means it didn't get done. Um, so you, you purposely, you intentionally decide what, you know, you're kind of doing a cost benefit analysis always, but you're always keeping that vision of, of what your objectives are, what your goals are, what your plan is, and how am I going to get to that plan? And so like, I have whiteboards on my wall. Uh, I have different calendars. I have different things to keep me on track, keep me on pace. Uh, I think often about there's a, there's a book called Four Hour Work Week and it and it's a it's it came out a long time ago, but there's something in there that that I remember that Tim Ferriss said and and it talks about all right if you had a heart attack and you could only work two hours a day what would you do, and then the next the next question is if you had another heart attack and you could only work two hours a week what would you do, and then you know if you only had one thing you could get done in a full day or an entire day, what would be that one thing? And the whole point of all that uh, to, to tie that up is, is everything that you're doing should be purposeful. Why are you doing what you're doing? And, you know, I talk to coaches about that too. You know, why are you doing this drill? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And everything should be directed toward your goals. And if you say that you want to develop people or you want to develop your program, your culture, then you need to be doing things that develop your program and your culture. Um, you know, what's most important. And, and too many times, you know, we mentioned Alan Stein earlier today, you know, we were talking about this this morning, you know, so many people mistake culture for, we put some really cool signs up in our locker room or in our office and that's not culture. That's just signs. That's decoration. Um, but a lot of coaches will do that kind of stuff. Well, we say that this is important. Well, you say it's important, but you don't live it out daily. And, and you have to live that stuff out daily, every single day, you know, whether it's, we're going to be a great rebounding team. Well, then every day you should work on rebounding, not just the day after that game where you get out rebounded. Um, if, if you say that these are our three core values, then by golly, everything you do should lead into those three core values. People should know those inside and out. And, and so, you know, it's the same way, whether I'm working for myself as a, you know, self-employed. Or, or you're working within a team or whatever, what's most important to you and, and are you living that out? As you've transitioned to the other side, what do you know now about coaching that you didn't know, you know, four years ago? Well, I, I get frustrated with coaches who aren't coachable. Um, and that seems like that's something that should be a pretty obvious thing, that coaches would be coachable. But coaches don't always want to be coached and coaches want players to be coachable, but coaches aren't willing to adapt to stuff. And, and I don't mean coachable. Like you go to this clinic and you learn this new zone offense. I mean, you're not willing to, to hear uh, constructive criticism. You're not willing to look in the mirror and say, you know what, what I'm doing is not working. You know, as a coach, there were so many times where I said, they, 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 they didn't get it done tonight. They didn't work hard. They don't know the plays. They, 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 um, or, you know, your players are idiots. My players are idiots. Well, after about four years, if you keep saying that every year, well, who recruited them? Who's coaching them? You know, if you have different players, but you're still saying they're idiots, well then who's really the idiot in this situation. And so I think a lot of times as coaches, we're not coachable. We don't want to be coached. We don't have a coach. We don't have someone pouring into us. Uh, saying the hard things that that we need to hear and uh, and and that doesn't matter if you're in sports or if you're in business or just a life coach um, you know I think everybody needs a coach and I know we were talking a little bit off air about that everybody needs a coach in life and you know even Usain Bolt or Michael Phelps you know there's obviously no one faster than those two but they can still learn from somebody that's slower than them because uh, you know you sometimes all you see is your tree and not the whole forest. Um, and, and so you need someone to help you see other things. Yeah. The blind spots. And also a great coach will ask the 
right questions to help you see the world differently. And I've been around sports coaches that are masters at that. Like they will ask their kids questions and sometimes those kids will come up with better answers than they will. But even as we think about adults and I have seen it, like a lot of my best work is when I'm the one asking questions and they're the genius that's coming up with the answers. And my job becomes rather simple. Like some of my best sessions with clients are, let me just keep asking you questions that you aren't asking yourself. And the other thing that I would say is that sports coaches in particular, they're, they're ripping and running. They're moving. They are focused. Like there is never enough time in the day. Like take football coaches, like they can continue to break down film and come up with new plays. It's, you know, there's, there's never an end to what they can do. And so to give yourself space, and this is the same thing for C-suite executives, to give yourself space to explore and have somebody ask you questions is extremely valuable. So I think we're on the same page. We're preaching to the choir here, um, but I'm glad you talked about it. And, Give every, and, go ahead. and with that, Brian, yeah, I, I want to just address that because, because I was the same way and I see that in people I work with, coaches I work with constantly. They're outworking people. They're, they're coming up with some of the greatest offenses. They're watching film. They know exactly how to beat this team. Um, they're working, they're working their tails off and recruiting to bring in these, these, these talented players. The problem is they're developing these game plans with people that don't trust them or don't trust each other because they're not taking time to worry about that overall culture and the, the feelings and the perspectives of their players. They're not dealing with, all right, Jalen and Chris just don't get along on this team. So it doesn't really matter if I have this great game plan or watch more film because Jalen and Chris don't get along. And that's going to ruin any play we have. Or, you know what, Jalen and Chris are turds. And so I can bring in the best talent on the recruiting end, but, but they're going to be around Jalen and Chris on this visit and they're going to see, and they're not going to want to come here. And so, so many coaches are working really hard at their craft. They're working really hard at the tactical part of it, but they're, of, they're, they're, they're losing sight of some of these soft skills, so-called soft skills, but these things that really actually are the things that keep them up at night and that cause their teams to lose. And, and so they're working hard at the wrong things. But I understand it because the reality is I would rather bring my wife flowers in a card and chocolates on her birthday or at Christmas time than to pick up my socks, to wash the dishes, to treat her nicely. You know, those are a lot harder things to do than is it is. Is she looking to, at you? Is she no, looking at yeah, you? Yeah. You, no, I mean, those are, those are a lot more difficult things. Just you're every day doing the right thing and working on relationships and connection than it is to bring a card or balloons home. Well, that's the same way. It's easier to put in a new play or to watch more film or to do this newfangled thing, but you still have the same deep-rooted issues. Yeah, for sure. It's a great place for us to to wind down. So let people know where they can find you on social media. Uh, and also, uh, if they want to learn more about what you're doing and your business, uh, feel free to let us know where we can find that. Yeah, website's coachbeckler.com. And that's B-E-C-H-L-E-R. And uh, Twitter is the same thing, at Coach Beckler. And we have some books. Uh, lots of uh, coaches have used the books for teams. And uh, um, yeah, I have a couple nonfiction books, have a, a, a modern sports leadership fable about a team on a bus ride and dealing with some of the issues that you deal with on a team. So yeah, they can find most everything at, at coach Beckler. Before we go, let's just go into the books real quick. So fiction, nonfiction, talk about your writing process and uh, when did you write those books and, and why? Yeah, I started three years ago. I've written one book a year um, and that's kind of the goal. Um, at this point, but uh, I, I'm, I'm more into the fiction part now, uh, the fables, like the John Gordon type thing, the Patrick Lencioni, Bob Berg, uh, Tony Dungy even wrote a, a fable or a fictional book um, just recently. And so I, I like that style. Um, I think a lot of people like it. We try to keep the book short. Uh, the one that, that just came out, The Bus Trip, uh, that's only 100 and, 124 pages, I believe, actual reading for the story. And, uh, you know, we had a team of, of about 12 coaches and a couple current student athletes uh, as my advisory team because I wanted to make sure that it was realistic. I wanted to make sure that they could relate to it. Um, you know, the last thing I wanted to do was just be this old, washed up, retired coach 
trying to write something and it didn't appeal and it didn't, you know, a kid couldn't relate to it. And so uh, took their feedback and pretty much uh, we did what, what uh, they thought was best and uh, to, to make it relatable and to make it relevant. And so the, the hope is I, I wrote the books. The main thing when I wrote the book was what would I want as a coach? How would I want a book to help my team out as a coach? And then that's how we, we went about writing it. And uh, you know, what, what we think can help out the most people. And it's just another tool in the tool belt of a coach. It's not a magic wand by any stretch of the imagination, but, but we have chapter discussion guides so coaches can take their whole team through these books. It's very cool. I, I just recommended five dysfunctions of a team today to uh, somebody. And, you know, I think I, I wish I had that creativity inside me. Maybe it's in there somewhere. I just haven't found it, but uh, I, I love reading books that, our storytelling and our, our fiction and you don't have to worry about, you know, check in for sources and all the other <laughs> stuff that goes into a nonfiction book. But uh, I appreciate you sharing the time today. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. You can listen to all these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. Jamie, great to connect with you. Great to learn from you. Uh, great to be influenced by you. That's for me, like the big takeaway is around influence and uh, looking forward to meeting you in person sometime when you're in DC or if I'm up in Ohio and uh, all the best to you and uh, look forward to our continued relationship and continued conversations. Thanks, Brian. Keep up the good work. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode jam. I mean, John Maxwell is all about leadership is just influence. It's one life influencing another. And so it's not about positions or status. It's about influence and that anyone can influence. And so then I would start thinking back to when I played and, you know, we influenced each other as friends, not necessarily because we had status or we were a starter or we weren't a starter. It was because we were respected. 